Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Salt and Light Hour. I'm Deacon Pedro. Today, we will go down into the Salt and Light Cellar and bring up some of our favorite conversations from Advent of 2015. First, we speak with teenage novelist, she's 19 years old, Denise Mallet, about her first book, The Tree. And we meet singer-songwriter Lupe Rios, who put out an Advent and Christmas album in 2015. In our second half hour, we speak with author Andy Bannister, who claims that atheists really don't exist. And we end the program by speaking with Rebecca Rubion, who's crowdsourcing for a new album. We begin now with The Tree. This may not be for everyone, but if you like epic novels, Christian medieval fantasies, Lord of the Rings style, you will love Denise Mallet's debut novel, The Tree. Have a listen. With only two months to save his country, Josiah has been dealt an impossible hand. He must find a myth, if a myth can be found. Setting out into hostile wilderness, Josiah begins crossing into the wilds of his own soul and into a realm beyond reason. And that's only one part of the story, because there's more. But to tell us, I'm now joined by Denise Mallet. Denise, welcome to the Salt and Light Hour. Hello. <laughs> so good to have you um, on the program, finally. Um, um, uh, there's so much I want to ask you, but maybe we should start with, if, if you can give, what's the two-minute summary of the tree? Well. If you can do it in two minutes. There's a lot. I, I don't know if I could stretch it into two minutes. <laughs> okay. But um, basically, it's a um, it's like a spiritual adventure, kind of is how I like to put it. Okay. Um, you've got you know the one side of the story is those two men journeying into wilderness to find this myth that is right. supposed to save their country from civil war, and then on the other side of the coin, you have um, political intrigue and treachery from the past being unburied so right okay um, you know that's good that's good maybe we should tell people more um so they <laughs> can go buy the book um the novel was inspired by a dream mm-hmm. yeah when that. i was about 13 i think it was uh-huh i had this dream that i was flying through mountains and i spied this village below so i went and landed in the village and in an alcove in the wall surrounding the village there was this tree planted there and I saw a fruit hanging, so I went to pick one. And the moment that I picked one, this village, which had been until that moment completely deserted and silent, suddenly erupted with activity as all these villagers came streaming out, and they were angry. And so I realized I had done something wrong and dropped the fruit and flew up and away. Right. And so from the stream, I just, it, it got the wheels turning. Like, what yeah. was it that I had done wrong? I, it's, in many ways... Um, linked to, like, the fall of mankind with the tree in the Garden of Eden. Right. It, this story is very different, but it kind of has the same flavor of temptation and that sort of thing. So. Yeah, and, and I think I, was, I wanted to ask you about that because, I mean, it has been described as Christian medieval fantasy, and I get that it's medieval, and I get that it's fantasy, but mm-hmm. what makes it Christian? Well, I wanted to bring our faith into the world without being um, too overt or cheesy. Uh So I've taken um, 
like familiar elements of our faith and given them different names and integrated yeah. them into the world. And um, it just, it's the driving force behind the story, the characters, you know, journeys um, toward Adonai, God. Right. So. Right, so you've taken, taken things of our faith and get like Adonai and given it, not that that's such a different name for, for God, um, and, and there are other things like that. Is there also um, symbolism that like the larger the journey stands for, you know, Josiah, Josiah and, the, and the, his companion are going into the wilderness, but that's also symbol, symbolic for, as you said, as in the, the description, as I, as I just read in the description, that it's kind of going into our own soul. Mm-hmm. I think very much so. Yeah. In fact, in writing this story, like not a lot of, not everything I should say is, my intent, um, uh, what am I trying to say here? Yeah. I, I guess the reader can take different things from the story that I didn't necessarily intend, mm-hmm. but I leave it open-ended. So the reader could be journeying into their own soul as much as yes. the various characters and kind of make it their own journey. Yeah. It certainly was a journey for me writing this book. Yeah. Um, I would say one of the most intense spiritual journeys of my own life. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, we didn't, we've spoken about Josiah. That's one, one of the main characters. And, but you have a female character, Rihanna, I believe that's how you pronounce her name, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and she's, again, I want to be careful not to give too much away, but she's very much, I guess she's very much the protagonist in the story. Um, how much of her is you? I would say a lot. <laughs> yeah. I think that that's what made it um, easier to write her characters that yeah. very much understood her journey um, of the desert. That's, I think, at the heart of her journey is discovering beauty in the desert, purpose in the desert. That's been my spiritual journey, so I just translated that into a character. I, I just find that when I experience something beautiful in life, I want to put it down into words. So to be able to take my personal journey and put that, you know, into a character was very special mm-hmm. for me. That's, that's Rianne. And can I assume then, because you had, I mean, you said you had the dream when you were 13, what, like mm-hmm. 10 years ago, nine years ago? I don't know. Um, <laughs> how much of this was being written as you're going through those key years in your life? Um, and there's all kinds of other stuff happening in your life that is obviously your own experiences growing up mm-hmm. adolescence is giving shape to the story well it took about 6 years to write <laughs> so yeah. it it was a process of like developing the story as i was developing yeah um between like the ages 13 and 17 um i didn't i didn't really have the story down yet and then when i was 17 i really felt the call that this was actually meant to be a book. Mm-hmm. So I kind of scrapped it and kept, you know, okay. the, the essentials like the tree. Yes, yeah. And then really began to write my story down. So from 17 to its publication, that's when a lot of mm-hmm. my, my uh, life story started coming out through the pages. Right. 
Yeah, but I guess a lot of that was already in, in you, um, just kind of brewing. Maybe brewing is not the mm-hmm. right word. but uh, And learning to um, put what was inside me down yes. in words. So learning what my style was Yeah. developing that. Yeah. Now, I, you come from a large family. Um, I, I actually know your dad and your mom, and, and, and I've been to your house in Saskatchewan. Um, but how, how much has growing up in that in that environment and and you can tell us as much or as little as you want about your family and growing up um but how much has that has influenced do you think not just this story but your writing in general um a lot <laughs> i had a very very rich childhood um for the experiences but also for the spiritual formation yeah my parents have done an amazing job in giving us a faith and a love for our faith. And also our lifestyle. Um, I see God easiest in beauty. That's, yeah. that's where I connect with him. And so growing up um, for a great part of my childhood on a farm, mm-hmm. there were so many opportunities to, to meet God and see metaphors in the world around me there. Yeah. So I, I don't know if I would have written this book if I had not had the childhood that that I was given. Yeah. And it's interesting because, I mean, your, your dad's a musician. Mm-hmm. I, maybe I should say her, your dad is Mark Mallet. Um, uh, but you, that's not where you were being. I mean, I'm sure that, that you guys all had a very musical upbringing and, and going on tour with your dad and, and your mom also sings. And, and, uh, but that's not where you ended up. You know, you're not writing songs. You're writing novels. I have written a few songs, actually, <laughs> with my sisters. That, yeah. That is, that is a love of mine. Um, it's definitely on the side, but yeah. I've fallen more in, in the footsteps of my father regarding writing. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's very cool. Um, I know that you're writing a sequel. I am writing a sequel. <laughs> Can you tell I us a bit? I was working on it today. <laughs> oh, were you? Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes. Um, it's the story that follows right on the heels of the tree, and it involves twisty political intrigue and adventure as uh, the country, country of Rolen is, is uh, seeking to claim the mountains before another country does. Right. So, Same pretty characters? excited about this. I was not planning on writing a sequel. I didn't want to write a sequel just because people wanted me to or because it would be smart. But I wanted to have an inspired story. Mm-hmm. And then one day, in one day... <laughs> The story just unfolded in my mind, and I started writing it, and it just was flowing from there. And yeah, it's kind of coming together in the same way that the tree was. So I'm just going with that, hoping that the Lord will carry me through to the end. So well, that's good. I hope it doesn't take you six years to write the sequel, though. <laughs> me too. <laughs> I learned a lot in writing the first one. So no, it that's be great, <laughs> and it, and it's, it's such a blessing that you're able to to sit and write actually, and, and uh, that, that seems that God has taken care of things for you so that you're able to do that. Yeah, it's, it's quite amazing. I know that if I'm faithful to my calling to write, that He's going to pave the way for me, and yeah. He is. So. Amen, good. And, and hopefully uh, a lot of our listeners will be interested in knowing more. So one last question. Mm-hmm. What is your hope? People read this book. I read this book. What is, your, what is your hope that this book will do for readers, other than just, you know, it's, it's entertaining and it's a good story? Um, what else? Well, I hope that readers will be able to find purpose in their own sufferings through what 
the characters learned that they'll learn um, more about God and maybe even more about themselves. Mm-hmm. It's my hope that the characters are relatable. So it's a deepening of their faith because even if I'm not necessarily writing about God, I want everything that I write to lead people to God. Mm-hmm. So I I hope that's what the tree does for people and I hope that's what everything else I, I ever write does for people. Amen. Good. Well said. Okay, I'm looking forward to the sequel. <laughs> Absolutely. I want my own copy. Autograph. All right, I'll sign it. <laughs> Very good. Okay, yes. Sign it again. Okay, good. Thank you, Denise. Um, thank you for making a little time for us today in the middle of your writing. And, uh, and uh, Merry Christmas. Thank you. Happy, you too. Happy Advent and Merry Christmas. You too. Denise Mallet is the author of The Tree. You can purchase the book just in time for Christmas and, and learn more about Denise and her writing at her website, denisemallet.com. And that's Mallet with two L's and two T's, denisemallet.com. Here now is our featured artist of the week, Lupe Rios, with La Huida from his new album, Songs of Advent and Christmas.
That was Lupe Rios with La Huida from his new album, Songs of Advent and Christmas. La Huida means, in Spanish, the running away or the fleeing. And singing with Lupe on this track is uh, Stephanie Paz and Xochitl uh, Arango. Um, Lupe Rios was born in Mexico and migrated to the United States as a young boy. He is a graduate of the University of Washington where he studied political theory, political economics, and he minored in human rights, religion, and music. So he was really busy in university. As we have been listening, he's also a talented singer and musician, and uh, he works as the director of worship for the Mission San Luis Rey Parish in California. And I'm very happy to welcome Lupe Rios to the Salt and Light Hour. Thank you very much for having me. Yes, welcome. So you're one of 12 children. What was it like growing up? (laughs) It was incredible. I'm number 11 Uh out of the 12, and there's uh, six boys and six girls. And uh, my family is very traditional. Uh Uh, We're from rural Mexico, so everything from chores being divided up a certain way to the hierarchical, um, you know, ways of speaking with parents and family members. Right. That was all just part of my growing up, and um, it was very hectic. But, uh, you know, my family, we had all these great traditions of, like, praying the rosary every single night. Yeah, My dad always took all the, all the men to work. I had to help with feeding the cows or things like this and helping my mom. Um, uh-huh. uh, my sisters were always, you know, like a little club of, of girls walking on the street. And it was very, it was something that I always took pride and uh, being their brother, because they were very pretty, too, you know? Right, <laughs> but, um, yes. Uh, having six sisters. And I remember when we would go to Mass, we would take up two pews, and um, <sighs> oh, a wow. few of us in the family can sing, so we would harmonize. Some of them don't sing so well, so it would sound like jazz and conflicting chords there. Right. But, um, <laughs> uh, in, in, in that sense, it was it was great. We, we grew up, um, you know, we didn't have very much. We were very, very poor. Uh, but the the spirit of the family was always so alive, mostly because of my dad's great work ethic and his outlook on life. Right. But um, really, it was my mom's faith that always gave us that insight of how to look at life in such a better way and to really value the time that we had as family together. Right. One of the one of the memories I have from being a kid, you know, some kids might remember going to the park and playing in the summer. I had to go work in the field. Yeah. with my parents. And I used to complain a lot about it, you know, because there were so many of us and we kind of had to do this work that I wasn't very proud of at the time. But now as an adult, I remember my dad being on a ladder, you know, picking cherries and whistling to some church songs. And my mom just on the bottom of the tree, you know, cutting the cherries on the bottom and my brother on the other side of the tree and me on the other side of the tree. And we're joking around and having great family time all day long, something that I was kind of blind as a kid, you know, to, to, to see the beauty of just being together. And I really miss that, especially now that I'm an adult and being alone for like 10 years yeah. away from family. But my family kind of just ran like that. You know, we yeah. went to Mass all the time. We worked together. We did almost everything together. It was a beautiful experience right. um, because of the traditional aspect of my family. Yeah. Thankfully, it was all very... You know, it, it just stayed together. It functioned. We all had our roles that we had to fulfill. And so it wasn't hectic in in a bad way. Right. It it's, was always very orderly. Now, it's very interesting to hear you say that because, I mean, you, obviously you're talking about once you had already arrived in the United States. Mm-hmm. And so your parents were mig- literally, literally migrant workers working in fields. Yes. That we hear yes, about. That's... 
that we mm-hmm. hear about, but most of us have never met someone in that situation. So it's interesting to hear you to hear you put it put in that perspective that you looking back that that was actually family time that that a lot of kids don't get to spend time with their parents because the parents are working but you actually yes. because you had to work um that's such a blessing that you are able to have yes. that insight um so uh, being uh, sorry let me ask you how old were you when you came to the united states the very first time about seven years old okay, and so we came back and forth okay and uh, when you were in mexico obviously you're in a, from a large family, but did you also have a larger in the community you lived in with grandparents, abuelitos, and cousins, oh, and yes. tios, and everybody, <laughs> right? Uh, I must have, my parents must have come from that generation. You know, on my dad's side, there's 18 oh my of God. them. So half of the, 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 the town was related to my dad's side of the family. He comes from, you know, a half-Spanish family, so yeah. they kind of trace the whole thing back, and they kind of own part of the land there oh, wow. back in the day. And so yes. everybody was a cousin. And, um, the, right. you know, also just because of maybe the way that the church is in Mexico or something, but when you have all the godparents and you have um, all the uncles and everything, it just kind of revolves around that. Everybody just kind of felt like a family. But yes, my mom is from a much smaller family of yeah. four. Okay. Yeah. Um, but both families function very similarly. They all knew each other's grandparents and great-grandparents, and they all kind of married within, you know, 20 yeah, miles. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. That's, again, something that a lot of us n- never experienced, especially in North America. Now, once you arrived in the United States, you were a young boy. You had to do, you know, work. It was a totally change for you, different language. Um, but obviously, and I think this is also an experience that a lot of immigrants have, that your parents really sacrificed a lot for for their children. You obviously had a chance to learn music. I don't know, what was that like? Did you have to, did you learn music kind of by accident? Did you take lessons? Did you have to study piano? You know, it all came from my mother. Yeah. She um, she sings all the, 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 the church songs that sound like you're singing kind of like in a cantina. You know, she cries and they kind of <laughs> go up and down with a very kind of Mexican way of singing. And she tried teaching me those, but... From yeah. a young age, she noticed that I didn't quite have a mariachi voice. <laughs> right. And um, I just learned all the music from my mom because we would canter all the masses in okay. Mexico because we didn't really have choirs. Yes. And from her, yes. I learned, you know, how to access my voice. She's never had any formal training. She went only to third grade and my dad to first grade. Uh-huh. So singing came very naturally to her and one of my brothers. And through her, involved in the church choirs as a volunteer, you know, I remember in Mexico, my sisters were all part of this choir, and this uh, young man used to come and teach all six of them. You know how convenient. But yes. I was always the little kid that sat right next to them and just kind of screamed to the songs. And he always said, oh, no, you know, you can't sing yet because you scream too much and your voice is too light and too high and you sing yes. like a girl. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, it's a blessing because now I have, I think, a pretty nice tenor voice. You do. You and, have a nice um, high voice, high tenor, yeah. <laughs> It can go pretty high up there, but it comes from singing mostly with my sisters and my mom and, uh, you know, the access to all those high notes. It comes from doing like an alto part or a harmony to my mom's singing right, <laughs> so that I right. could quite do in, in, in the male voice. And um, there, through the music, is really how my life has evolved, and, and God has used my music really to kind of 
bring me to this path of life that I'm now living, yeah. it was all kind of by accident. I've I never know. had a yeah. single formal uh, uh, session, uh-huh. either in piano, guitar, or in voice. Or in voice. But, but I've always hung out with people that are much better right. than I am right. and, and learn as much as I could. And, and as you said, it was not expected because you ended up at the University of Washington, and I'm sure that that was quite the journey to get you there and studying mm-hmm. everything under the sun, but um, politics, economics, human rights, religion, music, I mean, music is there, but what were you thinking? What are you, did, uh, politics? I mean, is that something that you wanted to pursue? I think it comes with my personality and seeing the things that I had to witness growing up, yeah. you know, and uh, seeing that, you know, the way that things work a lot of the times is through politics, yeah. and politics always played a role in my life uh, they guided a lot of who I am indirectly. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it affected me negatively most of the time, <laughs> to yeah. be honest. And that's why I thought, well, you know, somebody is making the rules out there. And the best way to, 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 to cause change, at least in the secular way of thinking, is probably to go into politics. I've, right. I've changed my mind a little bit about that. <laughs> right, yeah. No, <laughs> now, but yeah. that was my thinking back in the day because I grew up seeing so much injustice around me, yeah. you know? And... There was no formal way to complain, and yeah. on the side, I was just a kid, and I always knew that having access to people that had the power <laughs> yeah. um, was probably one of those ways that I would better my life and better the outcome for the rest of my family that comes after me, and yeah. a lot of other people that are in a similar situation, not just immigrants, but anybody that is, you know, ha- that starts out at, at a disadvantage. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, hey, you're still young. You might still end up doing uh, something that makes a difference in people's lives. Um, is this your first album, this Christmas album? When I was 18, I had uh, a different one that I did because I was working in the Hispanic parish, just kind of volunteering, and a group yeah. of friends and I got together, and that was called Mis Momentos con Dios. It's uh-huh. all in Spanish. I grew up in the charismatic movement, so yeah. it has a little bit of that. Yeah. And... And then, yeah, I, I kind of stopped doing music for a while. And now that I've, I've gotten back to music, um, this is the first one that we have out there. I have a lot of stuff that I've written that I've still not recorded. But this was kind of like the debut to kind of see how what kinds of things people like. And also to introduce myself with uh, music that people are more familiar with before Absolutely. I you know, show them the, the stuff that I have written. Absolutely. Um, uh, that's all the time we have, Lupe. But I'm so glad that we finally got to connect. Um, I, I get a Christmas album every year, that's, and this is mine for this year. So this is, this is uh, it's a real treat. Thank you very much. Before I let you go, though, and I tell people that where they can go and find your music and learn about you, your website, you're going to have to explain this website so that people don't think that I made a mistake. So lupedifranco.com is your website. Yes. Why? So my name is Lupe Rios. Uh, at the time, since... I was 18, we would go by Lupe Di Franco, mostly because I came from a time period in my life when every time somebody called me Lupe, I would get, oh, that's a women's name. Right. And, uh, we, and Lupe Rios, you get a lot of women in Texas. No problem with that. Yes. So I was like, I have to make sure that they're not coming up all the time when you type in my name. Yes. So we went with Lupe Di Franco because I have an Italian background also, right. uh, you know, about two, two generations ago. And I was always called Franco by some of them. So we went Lupe y Franco because we thought it sounded good. At this point, I do prefer, however, my real name, Lupe Rios. Lupe Rios. Yeah, which is a great name, but the website is Lupe di Franco, so just to, so that people aren't confused. Thank you so much, Lupe, and uh, continue having a blessed Advent and a Merry Christmas. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure.
You can learn more about Lupe Rios. You can buy his music, book him for an event, or find out where he'll be performing next at his website, lupedifranco.com. I'm going to put that link on our site so you can find it easily. Here now is Lupe Rios with uh, What Child Is This? Um, and singing with him are those two young girls, Stephanie Paz and Xochitl Arango, from his new album, Songs of Advent and Christmas. We're listening to Lupe Rios with What Child Is This? from his Advent and Christmas album, and singing with him are Stephanie Paz and Xochitl Arango. This is a special edition of the Salt and Light Hour. I'm Deacon Pedro. Check out our website at saltandlighttv.org radio. According to research, the number of atheists is on the increase. Now, honestly, I don't know if this is totally true. I guess researchers know what they're doing. But I do know that there are some people for whom being atheist is maybe trendy. There's even a new term, new atheists, that has been popularized by people like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens. But more importantly... How do you respond to those arguments that people use to counter the idea that there is a God? There's a new book now that claims that most of those arguments are really bad arguments and that, with a little thought, it's actually not that hard to do away with all those bad arguments. The book is called The Atheist Who Didn't Exist. And to tell us more, I am joined by the author, Andy Bannister. Andy, welcome to the Salt and Light Hour. Thanks for having me on the show. Great to be with you. Yes, I, I, I was telling you earlier, I, I, very, I mean, I love having these conversations with people and these arguments, so I love the book and I love how you approached the topic. But let me ask you first, why, why did you write this book? I think, uh, to be honest, I, I wrote the book for, for a number of reasons. Firstly, because I was seeing atheist arguments pop up everywhere, you know, not just in, in academia, uh, not just in the writings of people like Richard Dawkins and, yeah. and others, um, but also in the mainstream. I would yes. hear sort of people sort of recycle these arguments in conversations, particularly on university campuses where I spend a lot of my time. So I thought, you know what, there's something that needs to be done here. And then secondly, I think there have been some really good Christian responses uh, to some of this popular strand of atheism. But often those responses are quite philosophical or quite theological, such that the people they're intended for never read them. They're, those responses right. are often only read by Christians. Yeah. So I wanted to write something that was quite deliberately aimed at atheists itself. And it, it, of course, you've read the book. Yes. I hope you'll kind of see it. It doesn't assume a lot. It doesn't assume any theological background no. or any worldview commitments. And it's uh, deliberately the reason I use humor, as I do quite extensively yes. in the book, is again to make it super accessible. This is a book designed for giving to a skeptical friend, an atheist friend, and hopefully they'll actually read it rather than just leave it on the shelf. Right. Now you say that that this this new atheism relies mm. mostly on poor arguments and cheap sound bites. Why? Yeah, that's right. But wh- wh- well, I think. Yeah. But yeah. Sorry, I was going to say that. I think for a number of reasons, but one of them is that we live in the age of Twitter. And, right. uh, and social media has really brought in this whole kind of culture of argument by soundbite. Uh, sadly, Christians were not immune from it mm-hmm. either. You know, you, we think all we have to say is sort of Jesus saves, and that's the end of the conversation. Yes. Um, and our atheist friends are not immune from this. 
And so, of course, if you can write a clever soundbite, it sounds great on Twitter. It, it circulates around the culture, but it's often meaningless. I mean, it's all very well to say that belief in God is like belief in Father Christmas, as, yes. as Dawkins has sort of said. Sounds very clever. It's not really an argument, and it doesn't really work when you dig into it. Right. So you're saying that these, these uh, and if you, you, I guess the example of Twitter, 140 characters, they, it might sound great, but it doesn't really uh, inspire much. There's no depth. It doesn't invite much thought. Like people just accept no. it and they don't think about it. That's exactly right. And I think one of the things that I began to notice is that going on in the wider culture, you've often got this sort of, you know, sort of massively encamped positions on either side. You've got atheists flinging sound bites of Christians. You've got, you know, Christians who are good at this stuff flinging sound bites back again. But I began to realize, you know, I meet a lot of people who don't have a faith in God, but are actually open to a more serious conversation but just don't know where to look right and so i think one of the things i wanted to do in the book was sort of you know dismantle some of the atheist sound bites and then really say to the reader look uh you know this by all means be an atheist and of course i'd rather you weren't but sure yeah. you know by all means be one but if you're going to be an atheist do at least be a thought through one yes and somebody who's actually thought about the issues not somebody who just flings clever sound bites around because they sound good Right, absolutely, be a thoughtful atheist. Um, so, so I wanted to ask you uh, about thing, uh, some examples, and I'm, I'm thinking that, because I know we had it here in Toronto as well, the, the bus or the buses or the streetcars with the sign. Um, That's right. There's probably no God, stop worrying and enjoy your life. I think you might have had it in London, England as well, and other places in the States. Um, mm. is that a, can you use that as an example to show how that's a bad yeah. argument? Very much so. I mean, I think... That, in a sense, uh, you know, beautifully illustrates what's, what's going on. There's probably no gods to so stop worrying and enjoy your life. Sounds really clever on yes. the side of a, of a bus. Yes. But um, when you poke at it, you discover it unravels a little bit. It does it in a couple of ways. The first thing I say, and I actually talk about this in, in Chapter 1 of the book. Yes. first problem with it, of course, is I'm not sure what exactly is the connection between the non-existence of something and any emotional state. You know, unless you're somebody who lies awake at night worrying there might be a God, which doesn't describe many atheists, in my right. opinion. Yeah. Uh, you know, if God doesn't exist, it's meaningless. I mean, the Loch Ness Monster doesn't exist. The abominable snowman doesn't exist. What difference does that make? Right. Particularly, what difference does it make if you're down on your luck and life is going really bad? You know, you've lost your job, your wife has walked out on you, uh, you've just been diagnosed with a terrible health condition, you're a Maple Leafs fan. You know, <laughs> everything is not particularly positive. Yes. What possible difference to your sorry existence does the non-existence of, of God make? I don't know why you would stop worrying just because there was no God, problem one. And the other problem, of course, with that slogan is the way it zeroes in, in on enjoy your life. And I say in the book, of course, you know, that's a very shallow view of life. Life is about much more than enjoyment. The only things in this world that are designed to be enjoyed and just enjoyed are products. You know, uh -huh. a donut or a coffee or perhaps an iPhone, that kind of thing. Yeah. But your life is not a product. And human life and human fulfillment is about so much more than enjoyment. And so that bus slogan represents this really, really thin view of what human life is all about, quite frankly. Absolutely. So that's, yeah, so that's a good example of how, yeah, the, these, you might, people might accept it and not think about it. And all you, I guess, not to, to diminish what you're doing, because I love what you're doing, is that you're, you're inviting people to think about it. And you're saying if, if people, if, pe I mean, I don't want people, I want people to buy your book, but if they don't, you, can they come up with some of these arguments, these counter-arguments on their own if, they're act if they actually think about what they're reading? Yeah. It's tempting to say, no, you have to buy my book because that makes the publisher very happy. But, <laughs> buy Andy's yeah, book, what can, yes. <laughs> what you can learn to do, um, I think, um, is one of the things I say when I, when I talk to Christian audiences particularly, is if we learn to ask questions about the things 
that we see. Yeah. Um, you know, often we see something like a slogan or we hear an atheist argument and we immediately start thinking, we just want to see things. We had a panic. Yeah. We think, oh gosh, what do I say? Or we start thinking, you know, how do I sort of download some really complicated, long-winded answer? But if you can learn to ask questions, uh, and two questions I think that every Christian should keep in his or her back pockets are, are these two. You know, what do you mean by that? And what's your evidence for that? Yeah. So if somebody says to you, you know, there's probably no goal to stop worrying and enjoy your life, you know, to look at your friend and simply say, that's really interesting. What do you mean by that? Because that will force them to begin unpacking it. What do you mean yes. stop worrying? You know, what do you mean enjoy your life? And then say, secondly, what's the evidence for that? So if somebody says to you, you know, belief in God is like belief in Father Christmas, just to go, it's a really interesting, really interesting idea. Tell me, what, you know, what's your evidence for that? What's led you to that conclusion? Right. And simply exploring those two questions, what do you mean by that? What's your evidence for that? That can get you huge distances in, in conversations about faith. Uh, with yeah. your friends. Learn to ask really good questions. Jesus does this in the Gospels yes. uh, all the time. You know, read the Gospels through and notice how many times he responds to a question with, with a question. question. We need yeah. to learn the power of good questions. Yeah. Well, Jesus, you know, he, he had some good stuff. Um, he did, yeah. <laughs> so that's that's good advice. So so to ask, what do you mean by that? And then, or ask, what evidence do you have for that? Um, yes. Why do you think... Why do you think that so many people, maybe, I don't know, I, in my experience is not so many people, but maybe there are so many people that, that they decide that they're atheists. Do you think that it's because they, they're they just not thoughtful? I think, you know, to be honest, there are, there are a number of reasons. Um, sometimes, uh, more often than, than I would like, I meet people who, when you dig into the reasons for their atheism, it's a bad experience with Christians with the or the church. church. Yes, yes. And I think... I think those of us who love Christ need to take that very, very seriously. Yes. When the church goes badly wrong, it can have devastating consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, now, interestingly, of course, that's a pastoral issue, not an intellectual issue. Yes. And if you hear somebody who's got one of those stories, you know, listen to them, sympathize with them, weep with them, but gently point out that's not our argument against God. It's just an argument for the, for the lunacy of some of his people occasionally. Yes. yes. Uh, and then I think flowing from that as well, I think, I think some people, atheists I meet, have kind of given up on the whole idea of organized religion. There's a sort of sense that, you know, religion has caused so much problems in the world. Um, often people lump religion together. So, you know, we look at, say, perhaps Islamic extremism, and people assume, well, that, you know, the problems there apply to all religion. Mm-hmm. And so there's a kind of sort of sense of, you know, what good can religion possibly do? You know, think of John Lennon's classic song, yes. Imagine. You yes. know, imagine the world without, it, without religion, without heaven, that kind of thing. And the idea that it would therefore be immediately peaceful and wonderful and, and utopia. Yeah. So I think, What's interesting is lying behind a lot of atheists I meet, there are emotional arguments. Because, mm-hmm. again, that's an emotional argument, not a, not a rational one. Yeah. So I think what I'd say to people listening to this is every atheist is different. You know, so if somebody says to you, There's an athe- they're an atheist or introduces themselves as one, I think there are two things you can ask. One is you can say, well, that's fascinating. Tell me, you know, tell me about the journey that, you got, that got you there. How did you arrive at that position? And try and find out there their personal story, and as you do, you know, try and sort of unpack what it is that's led them to that conclusion. And then interestingly, I think when someone says they're an atheist, you know, one of the things I like to do is respond and say, you know what, atheist tells me what you don't believe, Mm. but what do you believe? believe? Tell me what you're passionate about. Uh, Because I don't believe in the tooth fairy, but I don't introduce myself to people as an atootharian. That's not a thing I use to describe myself. It's very curious that you've used atheist to describe yourself. But, you know, tell me about the things you're passionate about. And as you find out some of those, I think very often those will give you connections yeah. uh, for the gospel once you know where people where, where people's passion lies. Yeah, and uh, often in my experience, they'll say what why what kind of God they don't believe in, and my response is, well, I don't believe in that God either. 
So their idea I think that's of, very helpful. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah that can be very helpful. I think the other thing that's also related to that that can be immensely powerful is if their critique is is against the church, and yes. it often is, is to say to them, you know, it's very interesting that when Jesus was here on earth, he he reserved his strongest words for those who yeah. were organized religion. He spends most of his time critiquing the organized religion of the day and attracting irreligious people. Mm-hmm. So if you're saying that the church doesn't always stand up to what, you know, it's high calling, do you know what? I largely agree with you, but here's the interesting thing. You need to look at who's standing next to you, because Jesus made that critique as well. Yeah. You're closer to Jesus than you realize. Have you two thought about having a conversation? Yeah. And uh, use that as an opportunity to, to get them to consider Christ. Yeah. Um, because very often, you know, if those critiques are, are well made, and sometimes they are, you know, rather than defend I think you know, learning to apologize is a good is a good starting point. But find a way to connect someone very quickly to Jesus, because that ultimately is what all these conversations are about. Isn't it? It's not about winning arguments. Yeah, you absolutely. Want to see yeah, abs- to discover Christ. Amen. So we're absolutely where it's about evangelizing in in a way that's not uh, alienating. Thank you, Andy, for writing the book. Thank you for this conversation. Um, lots of good tips here. I'm sure people are going to be interested, and in they're they're going to flock the bookstores and get the book. Um, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on the show. It's been great, great chatting with you. Andy Bannister holds a PhD in Islamic studies from the London School of Theology and has taught in universities across the United States, Canada, and the UK. His latest book is The Atheist Who Didn't Exist or Dreadful Consequences of Bad Arguments. It is published by Monarch Books. You can find out more at theatheistwhodidntexist.com. Here now is our featured artist of the week, Rebecca Rubion, with the title track of her upcoming album, Sleepless Nights. These days are nights are filled with endless fighting. I toss and turn into oblivion. You say that I'm a fool and I say you're ridiculous. I'd rather forget it and just have some fun. If we're gonna be old till sunrise, hang up your telephone. What's life worth living if we're together and feeling alone? I'm tired of sleepless nights. I'm tired of sleepless nights. Don't want another restless fight. We can go to bed when we're dead, so stay up and dance with me. Get over here and let your body feel this beat. 
That was Rebecca Rubion with Sleepless Nights from her upcoming album of the same name. Now, we last heard from Rebecca Rubion last Christmas. She had just put out a new album titled Christmas Lights. But now, the New Orleans-born, Nashville-based singer-songwriter is working on her first ever full-length album, and she's seeking crowdfunding to make it happen. The album is titled Sleepless Nights, and I am, I am now joined by Rebecca Rubion to find out more. Rebecca, welcome back to the Salt and Light Hour. Thank you so much. It is an honor to be back. So I was going to start by asking you um, what you've been up to since December. And I know you've been working on the album. So, But I know that something special happened last weekend. So tell me about that. <laughs> well, um, a lot has happened musically and otherwise. Yes. On a personal note, I just got engaged to be married um, to a wonderful, wonderful Catholic man who was actually studying to be a legionary priest for several years and um, left the seminary, discerned out, and actually um, a couple years after he left, he ended up coming to one of my shows. So my music (laughs) uh, kind of brought us together, and it's really cool how God just weaves people in and out of their lives and yeah, it's been an incredible journey. So I'm really excited for my vocation. Interesting, absolutely, and 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 I'm excited uh, to see how that. I mean, once we go into different stages of life, how that affects our art and our music. So uh, mm. um, that that's going to be very cool. Congratulations to you and your fiance. Um, Thank you so much. So musically, mm. you've been, I guess, working on this new album, correct? Correct. So tell me how that process is for you. Do you are you always writing music or do you you decide I'm going to do a full length album and I'm going to sit and just write? How does that work for you? Well, I knew I wanted to do a full length album because I've never I've only done smaller uh, albums in the past called EPs. They just have about four songs on them. The Christmas album has eight songs and I really wanted to do an official full length. And, and after I did the Christmas album, I had already been writing several songs other than the Christmas material. And so for the last two years, I'd say I've been writing and co-writing in Nashville and pick the best songs possible. And I actually had to pick with the producer from about 30 to 35 songs that we oh, listened really? to and we said okay what are the best 10 songs yeah so so that um, mean, so wait okay no but sorry sorry to interrupt so that means you have to have 30 <sighs> to 35 songs for a 10 song album well you don't have to but i kind of wanted to have a part from because it's a pretty it's a pretty large undertaking to do a full length album and you really want every single song to capture someone's attention we live in such a short span attention yeah. Um, a world these days and everything's instant and move on to the next thing. And so to do a full length album, I really wanted every song to be amazing. And I wanted the listener to say, Oh my gosh, like I'm okay. Right. Of listening course. To this album for 20 or 30 minutes. Of like, course. And, and do you, do you, do you think of an album as a kind of like, it's a one project. So you're, you're thinking of a theme and all the songs sort of have to do with a particular theme or is it just a, a combination of, of kind of wherever you are in your life and, and then you decide on what, you know, the title and the theme is going to be afterwards. How does that work for you? Well, for me, it's, it's 
there's always going to be a common thread of songs that I'm writing in any particular phase of yeah. my career or life. Um, the last two years have been kind of a, a time of patience. Uh, I was able to sign a TV and film deal with a label. Um, so first label deal, not quite a record deal, but right. they take my songs and get them on TV shows and movies and things. And that's been an awesome, but just waiting for the next big move in my career. And also, um, you know, my vocation, honestly, uh, just trying to really discern that and kind of what God wants to do with my music and built up a fan base um, down here in the southeast of the United States and, and um, you know, building across the world slowly. Yeah, um, of course. But, yeah, it's just been kind of a culmination, that common theme of, I think, self-discovery, patience, and really soul-searching. So why Sleepless Nights? Sleepless Nights was a song that I actually finished hours yeah. before going into the studio to record it, but we, I had the chorus, mm-hmm. and I had I had written the chorus. Uh, the tagline is, I'm tired of sleepless nights. Uh-huh. Um, and I had written it actually in the middle of the night, just not been able to sleep, kind of anxious about where is my life headed and am I making the right decisions, um, which is, I think, a feeling a lot of people can relate to and wrote the chorus. And later I was listening to the idea and I'm like, this is a really fun, this could be a really fun song. And uh, one thing I really love doing with my fiance is dancing. We, we oh, just nice. like love to dance. Yes. Um, not necessarily like swing dance, but just, yeah, just have fun on the dance floor. Um, and so I kind of wrote the song in a way that was about a relationship. And, um, you know, if I'm going to be up all night with you, let's just dance, you know? Right. Um, nice. So I thought, gosh, that's a really fun, for this album, I just want people to listen to it and be able to relate to the difficult emotions of waiting and soul searching, but also just to have fun. And mm-hmm. um, I think it's really important to be, to soak up the present, like what God is calling us to at the, at every moment. To right. it's important to be responsible and think about the future, but it's also really important to um, really be present. And whether that's getting off your phone and being with the people around you, or um, not not stressing about tomorrow, like uh-huh. the Bible says, you know. Absolutely. So you you need help funding this album. You're doing a Kickstarter campaign. Can you explain for people who've never heard Kickstarter, how, how does that work? How can they help you out? Well, right now I'm using a platform online called Kickstarter, which allows people to contribute money to help fund the rest, the completion of the project. Yeah. So if you go to kickstarter.com, search for my name, or if you go to the link that I'm sure we'll mention on yes. this program, um, you can... Scroll through, read a little more. You can even watch a video, kind of a documentary of what we're doing, um, and select the rewards you want. So you can give anywhere from $1 to $5,000, and each reward tier has special special different unique experiences, unique um, projects and products that you can get. Um, One really special item I wanted to mention is this bracelet that I co-designed with a jeweler here in Nashville. I saw that. Yeah. Beautiful. And yeah. And we partnered with the Mocha Club, which is a nonprofit 
a Christian organization working with communities in Africa mm-hmm. to really help them get all around support from education to um, employment to running water and everything in between. And I wanted to help um, being a part-time nanny and substitute teacher here in Nashville. I wanted mm-hmm. to help kids get an education. I really feel like um, that's a fundamental building block. Right. Um, and so part of the proceeds for that specific reward package with the bracelet, which is in the $150 tier, yeah. part of the proceeds for that specific package will go to these kids in Africa. Nice. So just trying to really create things that are unique, that support the project, but also have a bigger purpose yeah. than just me and just my music. Good. You know what? I really like that because I have you. That's the first Kickstarter campaign that I've seen a partnership like that with a product. So that's very cool. Um, it, it, it's great because in, in essence, if people give 15 bucks, they're basically pre purchasing the album so you, you're buying the album before it comes out so i encourage everybody to go and support rebecca's uh, uh kickstarter campaign rebecca i know you have some christmas shows coming up and the album should come out in the spring so there should be some 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 concerts some touring in the spring um we'll let people know closer to that date more details but thank you so much for what you're doing i love the music I, i've only heard the two songs um but i'm very <laughs> excited so i i hope that uh, i get to get the sneak peek as as more music comes comes out yes. uh, before the album comes out thank you thank you so much this is very exciting and humbling and I really appreciate all the support you're very welcome you can find out more about Rebecca Rubion and her Kickstarter campaign and uh, to help fund sleepless nights at her website go to RebeccaRubion.com but we're going to put all those links on our site saltandlighttv.org slash radio so you can find it easily Here now is Rebecca Rubion with a teaser from the new album, Sleepless Nights. Here's a great song, Anywhere I Go. Anywhere I go, you're always in my heart. Anywhere I travel, I'll never fall apart. I can get lost, lose my direction, still have our connection. Anywhere I go. Anywhere I go. We're listening to Rebecca Rubion with Anywhere I Go from her album Sleepless Nights. And that concludes this special edition of the Salt and Light Hour. Remember to visit our website, saltandlighttv.org slash radio, and look for me on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening. I'm Deacon Pedro. Anywhere I go, keep your smile. In the back of my mind To keep me warm When the nights get cold